0: Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Captains of Disaster, Vulture Capitalism, and the Pandemic Playbook with historian Quince Labodia. All of our music for today's show is from composer and saxophonist Henry Threadgill, and all of it produced during the Reagan presidency. This is Subject to Change from the 1985 album of the same name. Let's begin with what prompted me to contact today's guest, the opening paragraph from an article from April 30th in The Nation magazine. Here's Quince Labodian. In
1: 1807, Heinrich von Kleist published a short story called The Earthquake in Chile. Its heroes are a man sitting in prison and a woman in a convent, each confined for the crime of conceiving their child out of wedlock. All of a sudden, an earthquake hits, the buildings that house them collapse, and the couple rediscover each other in the wreckage. Seeking shelter in the woods, they meet people who knew of their sin, but welcome rather than judge them. In the flush of the emergency, all is transformed. Instead of the usual trivial tea-table gossip about the ways of the world, everyone was now telling stories of extraordinary heroic deeds. Exhilarated, the couple follows the masses to the only remaining cathedral, where, to their horror, the preacher rages against their transgressions. The climax of the sermon, the crowd identifies the pair and clubs them to death. The inverted world is gone as soon as it came.
0: Earthquakes, pandemics, and economic collapse can bring much misery and suffering. But might they also be opportunities to see the world with fresh eyes, or as Slobodian says elsewhere, to get an X-ray view of governing structures? Is it a chance to practice living in different ways, to stand against the way that reductive systems use us? Or will it happen again that those in power and those with great wealth will rush in and capitalize upon disaster? That is the playbook, after all. The vultures are circling overhead as unemployment rises to levels last seen in the Great Depression and corporations declare bankruptcy. But while we're seeing little government assistance to aid actual people, corporate bankruptcy is actually a kind of safety net. As financial challenges continue to escalate amid the crisis, bankruptcy is sure to offer a financial safe harbor from the economic storm, according to the American Bankruptcy Institute's executive director, Amy Quackenboss. Notable recent bankruptcies are Neiman Marcus, J. Crew, and Hertz. Here's a little detail about the Hertz bankruptcy that illustrates how capitalism defends itself from the people. 16,000 employees were cut loose, and former CEO Catherine Marinello walked away with over $9 million in total compensation, comprised in part of $1.5 million as salary, $5.5 million in stock, and always my favorite, $1.4 million as a bonus. Bankruptcy, it turns out, and as Donald Trump typifies, is a best practice, and best supported by government. From that same Nation article, Slobodian writes, A pioneer in vulture investing and now the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross praised bankruptcy in 2003 as the corporate form of Darwinism. This is part of statecraft as conceived by neoliberal thinkers. Specifically, how institutions are designed to sit between the rulers and the ruled, from law courts and insurance companies to investment law and the World Trade Organization. According to Slobodian, this is how capitalism is defended from Mass Democracy. Quince Labodian is a historian of modern German and international history and the intellectual history of neoliberalism. His most recent book is Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, from Harvard University Press. And he's the co-editor with Dieter Pleva and Philip Morawski of Nine Lives of Neoliberalism, from Verso. He's an assistant professor of history at Wellesley College. He joined me via Skype from Victoria, British Columbia. And now... Captains of Disaster, with Quinn Slobodian, on Interchange, on WFHB.
1: My name's Quinn Slobodian. I teach at Wellesley College. I've taught that for some time. I'm a historian by training. Published a book in 2018 with Harvard University Press called Globalists, and have since then published a Edited volume with Phil Murawski and Dieter on Verso books called Nine Lives of Neoliberalism and have been really active trying to track the intellectual lineages of different forms of political philosophy that see the market as the ultimate arbiter of human value and human worth.
0: What makes your work uh, in particular different uh, from somebody like Murawski's or Wendy Brown's, for, for example?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm very much in line with Morawski's work and Plavo. We've been kind of working on stuff together since the early 2000s already. And that what distinguishes our approach, um, which doesn't mean it's the only or, the, or necessarily the best approach, but what distinguishes our approach is we take a particular definition of what neoliberalism is. In general, the term gets used in kind of three different ways. I mean, it gets used to describe a kind of period of time. From about the 1970s to the present so a kind of era and global capitalism and then it gets used to describe a certain ethos or rationality you know we see ourselves as entrepreneurs of ourselves as bundles of human capital we're always trying to maximize and then it gets used in the way that i think myself and Murrowski and playva tend to use it which is a sort of a discrete intellectual movement associated with a specific number of people not necessarily a huge number of people that have been having conversations since the 1930s, which is when the term was coined as a self-description by this group of intellectuals around Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, Wilhelm Rupke, Ludwig von Mises. They've been having these conversations for almost a century about what they originally called themselves neoliberalism. And the relationship between these three things isn't always one-to-one. In fact, it's often not one-to-one. And I guess the way that um, we try to sort of bring some some clarity into the argument for our side is to say, what if we just use neoliberalism to describe this political movement, basically this discrete ideology. And then if we want to talk about capitalism from the seventies onward, let's talk about global capitalism from the seventies onward and then talk about those other things with different terms, but that it, it helps somewhat to keep the terminology of neoliberalism quite narrow so that it doesn't, um, turn into the kind of baggy catch-all uh, swear word of the left, which it, which it sometimes has a tendency to become.
0: Mm. Well, uh, yes, I was going to say it, it, it currently is a baggy catch-all. That's a problem with terms generally, I suppose, especially in the U.S., which uh, I think um, excels in expanding definitions so that they don't mean very much or confuse us intentionally. Besides saying it's a a sort of discrete individuals that were discussing this as a perhaps a political and economic ideology, uh, is there a a one sentence neoliberalism?
1: I think that the narrow definition is that neoliberalism is an ideology that seeks to understand at different moments how capitalism can be defended from mass democracy.
0: Mm, that's really fantastic, actually. So, um, well, why does it have the name? Why the name neoliberalism then in, in in terms of that particular definition? Does the name itself fit that definition?
1: Absolutely. So this 1930s moment that I mentioned um, was 1938 in particular in, in Paris. The stock market had already, had already crashed. The Great Depression had already broken out. And this group of thinkers who understood themselves in the classical liberal tradition of Smith and Ricardo, um, gathered and asked themselves how liberalism need to be reformed to prevent another such catastrophe. So the, the sort of self-regulating market idea of the 19th century, old liberalism wasn't, wasn't working. And the collectivist ideas of, of fascism and communism were on the rise in popularity. So they felt like they needed a new liberalism in which the state would have to take a proactive role to protect the market against the pressures of the people. So the a newness, they, they called it a renovation of liberalism and it, this is for me and for us, I think we think about neoliberalism, not so much as a theory of markets or even economics, but a theory of statecraft and institutional design Right. The story then becomes what kind of laws, what kind of states, both at the national and supranational level, are necessary to um, encase the market rather than to liberate it as is often described.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Captains of Disaster with historian Quint Slobodian, author of Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. Slobodian discusses the neoliberal practice of designing institutions that sit between the rulers and the rule, like insurance companies, investment law, and corporate bankruptcy, as a form of statecraft focused on defending capitalism from mass democracy. one thing that goes missing or is sort of um, attached to the side of it to say, well, of course, uh, the markets need the state. But uh, the focus is generally, I think, at least as you're speaking to it, that the state is integral and a partner in it and that people have to be in certain places or in positions of power in particular to sort of help those those specific um, Mm -hmm. uh, policies or ideologies move forward.
1: Yeah, and definitely it also, one of the interesting things about following these debates, which which we've done by, you know, reading the, the proceedings of, of the meetings of, of neoliberal gatherings, like the Mont Pelerin Society from the 30s onward, which often become academic articles and books, is you what you see is not so much a language of mainstream economics with sort of, you know, formulas or even statistics and, and graphs and curves. You have a long and to me anyway, fascinating conversation about the design of constitutions, the design of um, institutions that sit between the ruler and the rule. So not so much the state in the sense of people sitting in parliament or Congress or the president, but things like courts and third party arbitration courts, insurance companies, um, things like the investment law, the, the, the GATT, the WTO, these all become sort of novel um, institutional um, innovations of the last century hmm. that sit between, you know, the person and the ruler.
0: So instruments, in a sense, that can be used to make these things happen.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that gets obscured when one reads the writings of neoliberals themselves is um, the, the, actually the power of big business is often left out of the story so the it's often discussed that that the people can act as this problematic pressure group right as this kind of special interest group by asking for too much you know asking for goodies and free things from the state this is the usual fear but the way that big business and corporate monopolies can exert similar distorting pressures is often marginalized or you know discussed in passing or in the later work of the Chicago school economists kind of cosmetically made uh, acceptable. So the, the, one of the big stories in neoliberal thought is the move from being very strong on antitrust and anti-monopoly in the 1930s and forties to by the eighties, basically accepting monopolies and going really soft on antitrust and basically saying big businesses are, are okay because they lead to more efficient outcomes. And, therefore all the ways that kind of the corporate elites game the system themselves um is often sort of left to one side even though you know anyone watching american capitalism much less global capitalism for the last 30 years knows that that really the story is one about which corporate elites can kind of capture policymakers for their own ends and that big story of capitalism is often left to the side by neoliberals who prefer to think about new ways to sort of disenfranchise the supposedly socialist-minded masses.
0: Right. Yeah, I was, I was going to say this is a classic uh, history told by the victors.
1: Except that they always think they're losing. Um, and in their own way of thinking, they have reason to think that. So I'll give you an example. The end of the Cold War is often seen as a moment of the triumph of capitalism as an ideology against communism, for good reason, collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, new liberals were freaked out. They thought that um, this was only an apparent victory, and that statism, as they call it, and Leviathan lived on now in the social democracies of the West, and that what had happened now that the Soviet Union was gone is that new ideologies, and specifically they were scared of environmentalism, feminism, um, affirmative action, that these new sort of liberal uh left liberal ideologies would now expand out and become themselves global so they felt like with the proper communists gone the um the new enemy was actually even more insidious because they because they lived inside of capitalist um economies and so that's why if you read you know the, the the blog posts and the the tweets of the sort of libertarian world. What they're afraid of now is they feel like this obsession over public health, this obsession over climate change, this obsession over representation of people and of color and women in um, places of leadership. That these are all kind of the new faces of the old menace. Mm. Um, the red threat is now a green threat. Is now a feminist threat. Um, So in their mind, they are always losing because the goal that they want to arrive at is so absolute that no society would ever want to adopt it.
0: It's time for a break. This is Henry Threadgill with When Was That? from the 1982 album of the same name. When we return, Quinn Slobodian on The Enemies of Neoliberalism. Stay with us on Interchange. Back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Captains of Disaster, Vulture Capitalism, and the Pandemic Playbook with historian Quince Labodian. In this segment, we'll look at the rhetoric framing the enemies of neoliberalism. That is to say, any person, group, or idea that won't profit the capitalist, such as the rights of women, people of color, immigrants, or concern over climate change, public health, and the current pandemic. we've had conversations with multiple uh, historians uh, and writers on neoliberalism and one in particular Melinda Cooper you know basically mm-hmm. talks about the family and 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 the ways in which these new ideas of freedom or the ability that that certain groups had asserted freedoms like women <laughs> in particular and uh, and black people you know the civil rights era Uh, were enemies and what you've just done now is is say that this particular group neoliberals see climate change and uh, uh, global health and and pandemics as uh, as uh, enemies in the same way
1: yeah absolutely yeah i mean you you can see this in the last weeks looking at the response of of someone like um justin amash the uh, libertarian party candidate he is arguing that the real enemy right now is supposedly, quote unquote, central planners mm. who are trying to, you know, strangle all of our livelihood. Um, if you read the work from the Heartland Institute or the Mises Institute, they say that, quote unquote, COVID warriors are trying mm. to um, kill our freedoms. And we need to be, quote unquote, immunized with the ideas of economic liberty against the threat of government. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, there's really wild. There's really wild ways this goes, as, as you can imagine.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. The rhetoric is amazing. It's, it's consistently um, been able to be deployed in whatever whatever version you need it to be. I think it was almost one month ago exactly. You participated in a, a webinar for the Transnational Institute. Uh, that is described as an international research and advocacy institute committed to building a just, democratic and sustainable planet soon after that, you also posted a piece based on that contribution, three ways of looking at the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. The idea there is, uh, is that you lay out the ways in which um, looking at the coronavirus from some different perspectives will help us see how it's going to be uh, plausibly utilized by those already in power or those who want to have power, as well as how we might think of it so we can resist some of those power plays that are happening. If you don't mind, would you describe a little bit about that, the, the the three ways in particular?
1: The ones that I ran through in that in that piece, where the idea of the the virus as an X ray, and other people have described this, that, you know, the the effect of the pandemic has been to sort of like turn on the bright fluorescent lights in a dark room, and suddenly we see, you know, how close so many people live to the poverty line, um, how many businesses are massively over leveraged and like primed for bankruptcy. On the other side, how many other countries have sort of efficient institutional capacity in public health, universal healthcare systems that allow for a relatively quick um, flattening of the curve? Um, actually, I'm sitting in Canada right now in British Columbia, where a kind of combination of um, competency and public trust and authority has led to an almost elimination now of COVID-19 from this area. So. You, there's this x-ray effect where you can see what the bones of a society were actually you know made of other one i mentioned was the idea of of coronavirus as a kind of a dress rehearsal for future catastrophes and mostly i was thinking in terms of climate change so we can see also the way that we can or cannot come together collectively and um deploy the institutions that we have that are um within our reach and i think that that's another way of doing a forward-looking vision of what the coronavirus has done as a kind of a diagnosis of the status quo. But I guess the most important one I brought up was this idea of the coronavirus as a dynamo or as a kind of a motor, which is that if left, it will simply accelerate existing tendencies and existing dynamics in our societies and in places that have high levels of precarity and high levels of inequality will just be sort of given more accelerating momentum, more energy will be pushed ever more in that direction, that there's nothing natural about a kind of equalizing effect over the long term, even though we would love that to be true, us, you know, on the left and progressives. The prescription, if there is any, is to try to seize that dynamo, right, and to redirect it. The question then becomes how you do that, especially mm. when so many massive decisions are being made on such short timeframes.
0: The idea that the virus uh, responses show us, as you say, sort of the bones or the inner, inner workings and, and failures and or successes of particular responses mm-hmm. to the virus. What are the successful stories? Uh, you just mentioned your own sitting in Canada.
1: I mean, I think that one thing that's always helpful, especially when filtering through the the coverage, and this goes for you know our own echo chamber in this case, is to prevent kind of the tendency towards personalizing what's happening. I think there's Mm -hmm. I think the the unhelpful side of the kind of journalism around coronavirus in the case of leftists and progressives is to sort of pin it all on Trump or, you know, laugh at his latest foibles Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, trot out the latest kind of punching bag, whether it's, you know, Mnuchin or Pompeo or whomever. I think that a lot that these things didn't happen in 2016. Right. The, The problems that we're dealing with, they were already there the positive things that I've seen have been interestingly more those things happening, you know, below the federal level, below the white house level. I think that there's been a lot of leadership from state governors in some cases, right. From kind of Jay Inslee to, um, you know, in certain ways, Gavin Newsom and Gretchen Whitmer, these democratic faces have, you know, kind of risen to the challenge in ways of that, um, That one hopes for from sort of technocratically informed, you know, capable governing entities. The even Massachusetts, where I I usually live, has a Republican governor. But there's been no sort of questioning of, of the science or questioning of the need to protect lives and so on. So there's been, I think, a big decentralizing impulse with with the response to the pandemic and. The, the more local you get, probably the more encouraging the stories are. I think that once you get down to the street level and the block, then actually there is some encouraging signs of people, you know, setting up, you know, Slack groups or WhatsApp groups and, and putting, you know, free things on Craigslist for people who need them and dropping things off at each other's doorstep, uh, making deliveries for people who are who are needing things. So I think that concentrating on the massive sort of goon show happening at the highest level of government is uh, necessary, but should also be balanced with sort of, you know, embracing a lot of the kind of solidarity that's been shown at the, at the, at the smallest level.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Captains of Disaster with historian Quint Slobodian, author of Globalists, the End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. Slobodian discusses the neoliberal practice of designing institutions that sit between the rulers and the rule, like insurance companies, investment law, and corporate bankruptcy, as a form of statecraft focused on defending capitalism from mass democracy. (laughs) Even as we have already talked about the idea of the state um, and neoliberal ideas being integral, um, the state acts for neoliberalism in certain ways. So the state, not as a, a protector of, the, of, of uh, uh, citizen welfare per se, but of, of business practices, uh, things of this nature. So the state, the state needs to have power. One of the uh, interesting perspectives when you look at sort of local responses to the pandemic, local risk, even as you say, state responses in terms of like Michigan or uh, as you say, Massachusetts or California, to understand decentralization from the federal government is 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 kind of the confusion of thinking, what isn't that what they have in mind, or at least what these particular architects of you know, killing the state or drowning the state, you know, in the bathtub. Isn't this the, the actual idea? I mean, isn't this what, you know, the federal government at this point or people who propose these things uh, would like to see happen for all of the responsibility for these activities to be offloaded into states and municipalities? What does the federal government do then?
1: Absolutely. No, I mean, it is it is the effect of a of a concerted project over several decades to kind of cripple central government, not necessarily starve it because it does still, you know, continue to have a very large and growing budget, but to redirect its efforts away from um, projects of redistribution and cooperation and towards projects of um, zero sum competition. And yeah, absolutely. That, you know, I think we're seeing the battle between two visions of federalism, whether it's a kind of a competitive federalism in which the individual states, you know, fight it out against each other, or a cooperative federalism where they see themselves in partnership and facing similar challenges. The main advice that the president is getting right now on economics is from a kind of a clutch of, of libertarian think tankers, which includes um Art Laffer, father of Reagan's tax cuts, uh Stephen Moore And um, Larry Kudlow and and Kevin Hassett, who's former head of the Council of Economic Advisors, and Laffer and Moore have just rolled out their kind of proposal for reopening America. And it's all about making the states compete with each other.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: They say that there have been pro-growth states and anti-growth states. The pro-growth states are all low-tax states. They're all Republican states. The anti-growth states have been the blue states, the ones with higher state taxes. And they say that you know, opening up the economy can and should increase the kind of movement of investment and jobs from so-called anti-growth blue states to pro-growth momentum red states, as they call them. So there's that, you know, that dynamic and that perspective is there. And I think that the the situation that those blue states are in is to kind of um, figure out how they can work against that Dynamic and it's possible that, as you say, you kind of have to take as given that some capacity at the central level has been eroded and you might have to work regionally now to recreate more, um, socially just and redistributive, um, arrangements. So the, you know, the Northeast compact that brings together the Atlantic seaboard states and New England, you know, maybe this is a thing where those states start to have to coordinate their policies and their fiscal policies together and figure out what to do with New Hampshire in the meantime. But um, you know what I mean? I think that it's possible that the progressive reflex, which is that all good policy needs to come through somehow seizing the center and then conducting things from there, is probably not in very good shape right now when you think that a Democratic candidate is, you know, is a centrist without very transformative politics of his own, and the opponent is someone far worse, this might be a, a decent time to start looking downward at, at state level and, and lower as places where you can you know pursue projects that might be otherwise impossible at the moment at the national level.
0: It's time for another break. This is Gateway from Henry Threadgill's 1983 release Just the Facts and Pass the Bucket. When we return, Quince Labodian talks about the simplistic narrative of market omniscience. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. We'll continue with Quince Slobodian, author of Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. In this segment, corporate bankruptcy shows how government is necessary for the market to serve capitalist interests. Two prime examples of this are Donald Trump and his Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, birds of a feather when it comes to bankruptcy as a market. And when you talk about blue state and red state or degrowth uh, 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 versus growth, um, are these simply narratives, right? So a red state or a, a Trumpist would talk about uh, pro-growth states doing the, you know, the good work and opening up the economy, et cetera, and then uh, obviously vilify uh, degrowth in, in, in Democrat states or blue states. You know, Well, I don't know that Democrats are degrowth. So I just get sort of lost in how we're supposed to be shaping these things within mm-hmm. capitalism, Democrats, Republicans, you know, all corporatists in most ways.
1: I think that it is definitely a question of narratives. And then in that sense, it's about combating the simplifications of some narratives and producing better ones. I think that one of the simplifications that the right owns that it's worth pushing back on is the, is the binary division between the state and the market. And this is something that I think that critics of capitalism are sometimes unhelpful in their own contributions and furthering because I think that one of the bad definitions of neoliberalism, for example, is it just means, you know, abolishing the state and letting the market rule. And the fact is for the market to rule in any meaningful sense, you need very proactive cooperation by the state and by the government. The overly stark division between the state and the market can work against us if we think that that what the right is doing is you know letting the market rule and the state is somehow shrinking or stepping back so the, and i, I mention this because i think it's going to be really important to watch in the next months and years in and around the space of bankruptcy and distressed debt the state of American corporate America is grim right now. Right. I mean, the state of, of working America is, is bad in the sense that unemployment rates are higher than they've been since the great depression. So that's obviously a catastrophe, but businesses too are, you know, very, very close to bankruptcy. Many of them will go into bankruptcy. And so I think it's a good time to sort of remind ourselves what that means and how the state and the market work together in the case of corporate bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Because what we're going to see over the next uh, year is a wave of corporations, uh, you know, filing for Chapter 11. So filing for bankruptcy. And the, the last example I saw uh, yesterday was Neiman Marcus. Mm. And, and it's, it's easy for us to transpose our own ideas of personal bankruptcy onto corporate bankruptcy. Because personal bankruptcy, you know, sucks. So it's terrible, right? <laughs> and you. You know, you lose your credit rating. You lose the ability to um, take out take out a loan. Whereas for corporate bankruptcy, um, it's a totally different story. So even as personal bankruptcy laws have gotten sharper and more punitive, think about, for example, the fact that you can't default on your student loans. Well, in that very period, the last twenty years, corporate bankruptcy has actually gotten even more generous. Mm-hmm. So what that what that means is now, if you as the management of a company declare bankruptcy, you can actually stay in charge of that company. What happens in the course of the bankruptcy is you get to default on a bunch of the loans you have. You, you come to arrangements with people who you loan money to, so they take a bunch less than they expected. And most importantly, you lay off a bunch of workers, you cut a bunch of their benefits, or you hand those benefits to the state which now takes them over. The Pension Loan Guarantee Corporation will now pay the pensions for those workers instead of you. And then you either reopen or you sell your business on to another buyer. And often it can be um, a, a, even you know a positive process for you. Not only have a bunch of bankruptcy lawyers made a bunch of fees in making this all happen and funds that specialize in this kind of thing, have come in and taken away the assets that are useful and sold them onwards. Right. But but you yourself can actually remain in in, in charge of this company. Mm-hmm. So so we're going to see a lot of this bounce past sort of you know collaboration between state and market in the next year. And it it won't be helpful if we're just looking for examples of like the market acting um, you know by itself because it it never does and it will be doing so even less.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Captains of Disaster with historian Quint Slobodian, author of Globalists, the End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. Slobodian discusses the neoliberal practice of designing institutions that sit between the rulers and the rule, like insurance companies, investment law, and corporate bankruptcy, as a form of statecraft focused on defending capitalism from mass democracy. (music) Uh, we're shifting into the piece you wrote for the Nation. This is vulture uh, capitalism. Wilbur Ross, in particular, he was a focus, and he was—he's a good—he's a good villain.
1: It's a pretty wild story. I think it was interesting for me to write about Wilbur Ross and to think about him because I'm used to thinking about intellectuals and the—you know—the influence of of a Hayek, for example, on, let's say, the creation of something like the World Trade Organization is always—you know—it's a. It's always a bit tenuous and it requires a kind of a series of interpretive leaps to describe how an idea becomes powerful. In the case of of someone like Wilbur Ross, right, I mean, you're talking about someone who's deploying literally hundreds of millions of dollars in funds, um, who's overseeing corporate bankruptcies that are, you know, in the Tens of billions of dollars. So the there is no leap between the influence of someone's actions and changes in the world. Um, so in that sense, it makes them. It's kind of interesting to apply intellectual history methods to people who are you know just um, corporate titans like like Ross himself and you know and Trump himself in, in other ways. Obviously, are two are kind of entangled in this story. Yeah. But the, but the big story with corporate bankruptcy is that these laws change in the late 1970s to become much more generous towards corporate managers and to allow for the retention of of a management position in a company during a bankruptcy. They also change to allow for the offloading of certain pension obligations onto the government itself, thus allowing for a period of what have been called strategic bankruptcies. So the... Changes also in laws about mergers and acquisitions means that really extraordinary things happened in the 1980s that I think are not sort of common knowledge. They're known well amongst sort of industrial sociologists, but I don't think the average person knows that in the 1980s, you know, something like a third of major corporations ceased to be. They were... Um, Absorbed into other ones, they were, they were uh, dissolved as they were acquired by, um, competing corporations or competing, um, entities. So it's, it's to the point that one sociologist describes the 1980s as the period of the vanishing American corporation. So we got this really intense period of crackups, breakups and consolidations of the corporate landscape that really did, um, Coincide with the, the vanishing power of the, the unionized worker in the United States too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the typical post-war firm that you think of, like a sort of a Chevrolet or a General Electric would have workers, um, you know, sometimes from the first day they left high school until the day that they retired working in their factories, um, with sort of cradle to grave union benefits. protected them you know enough to you know buy a house raise a family send the kids to college and all that stuff well one of the effects of the the transformation of the working landscape in the 1970s and really the 1980s is that all those kind of paternalistic companies that used to be there often just not there anymore they've been smashed up and broken up combined with other things so this is all happening through on the one hand the process of the so-called leveraged buyout, meaning you can buy the shares of the company partially based on the projected profit that you will make after the buyout. So it's already a kind of it's a speculation on the future performance of this company. But then it's also happening through the the um, instrumental use of bankruptcy law. And Wilbur Ross, who is now the Commerce Secretary, who was, by the way, until he entered the Trump cabinet, a Democrat, Becomes the biggest player in this world. He's described in the 1990s as the king of bankruptcy, the king of restructuring, because he as a he comes in as an advisor to companies that are either going bankrupt or in the process of acquiring um, um, big companies that are that are entering bankruptcy. The word for this world of companies that are sort of in peril is that is that they're distressed. So this this world of distressed debt and the word for people that come in and buy up distressed debt at the time were they were called vulture investors or vulture funds. The sector of finance sort of started to think that that was a bad PR uh, move <laughs> called vultures. To it, although the, in the financial press until the, uh, up into the 90s it was simply a common sense description for them. It wasn't a kind of a leftist smear or something. That was just right. what they were called.
0: Yeah, it was factual. Uh,
1: It was factual. Vulture (laughs) funds went in and picked the bones of dying companies and venture funds, you know, um, invested money in in newborn companies or or, or nascent companies. So that, that was Ross's world.
0: It's time for our final break and another composition from Henry Threadgill. This is Just the Facts and Pass the Bucket from 1983. Stay with us for more Captains of Disaster when Interchange returns on WFHB. Back. This is Interchange on WFHB. For our final segment, Quinn Slobodian discusses ways to neutralize the storytelling from the right that serves markets and mammon, and points to the upsurge in Americans discussing and even claiming to support socialism. But first, we continue with Wilbur Ross, bankruptcy law architect and current commerce secretary for the Trump administration.
1: It's important to understand that he comes out of this, the same space that Trump does, which is a world in which the the government and its laws is totally symbiotic with the amassing of private fortunes. Right. So the market and the state are by no means seen as antagonistic to one another. Mm. They're not seen as sort of things that need to be entang- uh You know disentangled and that the state needs to be drowned in a bathtub or whatever. I think that idea is totally foreign to a Wilbur Ross or a Donald Trump. They both think that the government is great and states and laws are great insofar as they provide the the means by which their own um, private wealth is maximized. Bankruptcy law is, is a key way in which that works. And I think that that is it's helpful because it helps us understand the way that Trump sees governance, right? That he sees, um, he sees governance as a process of not only um, private wealth maximization for those who are already wealthy, but as a kind of um, a social Darwinian process of, of purification expulsion of the, um, the worthless and maximization of the worthy. So in that sense, vulture fund people even though from you know the kind of left perspective they are just um you know reflexively seen as kind of villains as you said um from their own perspective they're they're fulfilling a kind of an important social function and that social function is one that is best understood in terms of social darwinism which is the term that wilbur ross used to describe bankruptcy himself that it was a corporate form of social darwinism they come in and allow for the expulsion of, you know, the weak, and the um, extraction of the strong elements of a corporation, allow them to live onward. Their apparent um, malevolence is actually they're actually doing service to the greater good because they're, <laughs> because they're helping overall productivity and overall value, and they absolutely see themselves. Yeah,
0: it's hard for me to believe that, but I'm 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 going to believe that. That's I mean, you're telling me the truth. I'm going to believe it.
1: There was a there was a um an op-ed in the Financial Times in April by the the, the chief operating officer of, of Blackstone, one of these um private equity funds, and he described themselves as rescue capital. Mm. Someone someone quipped that they were describing themselves as financial first responders. And that is effectively true. They saw themselves as saving companies in moments of um, in moments of peril mm. and preventing them from absolute destitution. And you know this is in fact how capitalism works. Capitalism doesn't work through you know a company collapses and everyone is fired and the and the person goes into penury penury and, and needs to sort of like walk the streets with a you know a cup with pencils in it or whatever the cliche has it. Um, capitalism works through um, uh, symbiotic relationships through state and markets. And I think that's the starting point for trying to make sense of um you know what will happen of the wreckage of the american economy in the next little while
0: yeah i think that's again the hard part uh, is the kind of worldview or ideology that maybe you, you think that you you're trying to work around yourself or trying to understand uh, and we keep running into uh, s- terms from sociology or terms from uh, theology we've had shows on here on political theology and these terms keep showing up right the ways in which we talk about salvation and i think there's a quote about uh capitalism and um uh i think it's what howard marx director of the oak tree capital management said capitalism without bankruptcy is like catholicism without hell right um, and it's like it's like in that one paragraph you write in this in this nation article they're like There's Darwinism, there's Catholicism, there's capitalism, there's hell. (laughs) And I'm just like, this these are these are narrat like these are narrative functions, right? These it's just kind of surprising to me that this is this is humanity narrating itself in ways in which, you know, billions of people suffer and die, but we talk about it on these abstract levels. Um that just it just kind of strikes me. I I just want to stop talking about it that way but i don't know how else to talk about it Mm -hmm.
1: well i mean the other way to talk about it is precisely through the sort of mathematized um, language of mainstream economics right i mean the the use of statistical time series and charts and graphs to show um, inflation rates and unemployment rates I, i think that the attraction of of reducing the world to numbers like that is is actually strong and not always misplaced because it's a way of trying to you know, get away from just narratives and rhetoric all the time, which seems to have gotten us nowhere positive and to be able to just strip it down to like, okay, what are the actual units of labor units of capital that are moving in which direction are they moving in? So I think, I mean, I would just throw in a a side note there that the conflation of the collapsing of neoliberalism with the discipline of economics altogether is I think also unhelpful not just because there are many and um, growing numbers of heterodox uh, progressive economists, but because actually neoliberalism in the kind of Friedrich Hayek model is itself interested in, in mystification in, in right. saying that that actually you can't see the economy, the economy is beyond human comprehension.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Captains of Disaster with historian Quint Slobodian, author of Globalists, the End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. Slobodian discusses the neoliberal practice of designing institutions that sit between the rulers and the rule, like insurance companies, investment law, and corporate bankruptcy, as a form of statecraft focused on defending capitalism from mass democracy. Rand Paul
1: just commemorated the birthday of Friedrich Hayek by tweeting out Hayek's comment that, you know, that the pretense of knowledge is that we can actually see and map out economic activity. Therefore, Rand Paul says, you know, we need to deal with the pandemic without trying to, you know, solve it through the application of models and artificial intelligence and epidemiological knowledge. We simply need to let individuals figure it out. Well, that is not a very economistic way of looking at things, actually, to say that people will figure it out. In fact, they, they won't. Right. Um, so I think that it's, it's helpful to keep those two separate because I think the progressives will need economists, and we need to sort of rescue that kind of quantitative knowledge, even as we try to make sense of all of the narrative and rhetorical stuff that you're
0: describing. I think the problem for me is still that there will be people like Wilbur Ross uh, who write those, those particular scripts on some level, or people that you talk about already, or we've talked about briefly, the goon squad for libertarianism, write their particular stories as well. We have to, or other people need to write different stories, obviously, but when there's money behind one particular story, it tends to be the one we all read and repeat. Um, the the one thing that's, that's um, I think, most important in some level, right, is that this is an age of opportunism and in in this sense right that there that when you know when you have to take one side so you make money it doesn't matter if it's a side you might have been against principally or might have said you were against principally you're Mm -hmm. you're going to take the money and you're going to say you're for one thing or another and then so that's that's a general now again i don't know that that's particularly different i don't know when the world changed from being principled to being opportunist
1: I would sort of half agree with you there because, I mean, so the perfect example of that, of course, was Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs saying mm-hmm. um, a few months ago that he would vote Trump over Bernie Sanders, right? I mean, n- in the sense that this longtime Democrat sees his own material interests so threatened by a prospective Bernie Sanders presidency that he's willing to embrace someone who he has otherwise been, you know, castigating for
2: years. So mm-hmm.
1: there is that. Absolutely, there's that. But what was Bernie Sanders representing? It's it's one thing to say that um, that the people in power always own the rhetoric, but look at the the meteoric rise of conversations about inequality in the United States or Great Britain or the European Union. Right? No one was talking about inequality 20 years ago politically on the on the you know on the campaign trail or at the at the on the stump speech. Now everyone does. Talk about the wealth tax, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders talking about um, workers on corporate boards in the United States, um, talking about, I mean, the Green New Deal itself. Like there has been a step shift in the thinkability of certain radical left positions in mm-hmm. the last five years that we should not ignore and that we should not downplay. It's not the case that the, that the chokehold of the right on political narratives is complete. It's not. It's got big cracks in it. The way that things have gone with the, the standard bearers of that new kind of progressive politics in the, you know, in the US, really Sanders and Warren in the Democratic primary and then the UK, Corbyn. I mean, it's been a bad six months, but that shouldn't make us overlook the fact that we do have counter narratives that are actually doing pretty well. Um, that are actually selling pretty well, and so that you know when libertarians freak out and say all the millennials want to be socialists, well they're kind of right, and that's good, hooray! <laughs>
0: <laughs> Again, it's just hard to have conversations on some level because uh, you know you get you move into abstractions uh, so yeah. readily.
1: I mean that is why I, in my own work, like to build things around biographies and you know proper names and stuff because right. I think that hankers it. Right? I think when you can see. The trajectory of a life, you can see certain decisions and moments where they've reacted to history in certain ways. It can, you know, we can place ourselves into the, the, the shoes of, of people historically that way more easily than just saying, you know, seeing it as just battling isms.
0: That's our show. And one more from Henry Threadgill. This is Those Who Eat Cookies, off of You Know the Number, released in 1986. Thanks to Quinn Slobodian for his insights into the ways neoliberals make full use of the power of the state to serve their needs, and how corporate bankruptcy is a great example of that kind of statecraft. Vulture capitalism has given us the carrion-feeding duo of Donald Trump and Wilbur Ross as captains of a disaster that perhaps became inevitable after the Reagan presidency. What's on the other side must not be more of the same. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Audio editor for the program was Sean Milligan. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.